If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Nazi regime claimed that the only place for women was in the home, kishkukakinda, you know, church, children, cooking. And yet they gave these two women this role, uh, the only two female test pilots, but two of the most famous and the most important test pilots for the regime in the war. That was Claire Mully discussing female aviators in Nazi Germany. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. As I mentioned on our episode last Thursday, We're now producing two episodes a week, and you're listening to our very first Monday edition. I hope that you enjoy it. Today we're going to be hearing the stories of two remarkable women who challenged the attitudes of the day to become leading aviators in Nazi Germany, both forming very different relationships with the regime they served. Their lives have been profiled by the author and biographer Claire Mully in her new book, The Women Who Flew for Hitler. She spoke to our staff writer, Ellie Cawthorn. So could you just introduce us to these two remarkable women and tell us a bit about their rise to prominence as pilots in the Third Reich? Well, 
This is a story about two women who uh, both learnt to fly over the same green slopes in uh, Silesia, in uh, what was then Germany. And uh, they both learnt to fly gliders because at the end of the First World War, for a while, mechanised flight, apart from commercial flights, was banned in Germany. Um, and gliding became the new sport, which was a real symbol of the country. It's like the phoenix rising from the ashes of that war. You know, it's this symbol of regeneration, of freedom. And because they won a lot of international prizes as well, it was something to be very patriotic and proud of again. And both these women want to be part of that new wave. So they learnt to glide over the same green slopes. And uh, they were both naturally absolutely brilliant pilots um, and women weren't really expected to fly in this day and age um, but it was a very glamorous time for flight so it was um, the perfume of choice was on Avion and um, Amelia Earhart and Amy Johnson one of them had a fashion line and they were in the papers every day and so the women were kind of riding that wave um, but they both had incredibly different careers through the war. So uh, Hannah Reicher is pretty well known. Um, she was, well, she was the first woman to fly a helicopter in the world. She first person to fly a helicopter inside a building. She's pretty extraordinary. Um, she then had a career during the war. She was blonde, uh, blue-eyed, very sort of Aryan, as she would have been called at the time. And she was very proud of that and delighted to be associated with the Nazi regime, which she saw as bringing back pride and and uh, commerce and, and jobs and everything for her country. She saw it in a very positive light. And so she was delighted to be associated with that regime. And she did a lot of PR work for them and uh, partly in consequence of that, but largely because of her own, you know, she was a brilliant pilot. She became a test pilot. And um, she flew things like planes that had special fittings on the tips of their wings to cut the cables, the steel cables underneath the Zeppelin balloons that formed the barricade around London and different parts of England. Um, and so she would deliberately fly into balloon cables. Um, you know, a huge risk, incredibly courageous work. Later, she became one of the very few women to fly um, a Messerschmitt 163, so a jet rocket plane. Again, incredibly dangerous. And she did actually, she had a terrible crash and and uh, uh, one of her contemporaries said she wiped her nose off her face in that. She um, also had some of the early pioneering plastic surgery. Um, and she was accord awarded the Iron Cross uh, second class for that and later the Iron Cross first class. Um, so an incredible pilot, devoted to the fatherland. Um, very different to Melita. Melita was much less bubbly, less confident, um, she was dark-haired, she was shy of publicity, but she absolutely adored flight as well. She loved the sensation of freedom, she loved um, she loved physics, and, and I think her love for engineering and her love for freedom kind of came together in the cockpit. And so she was also a brilliant pilot. Unlike Hannah, she actually went to university and did um, an aeronautical engineering degree, and she was spending her time half... Uh, at the drawing board, developing pioneering uh, changes for, in fact, the Luftwaffe when the war came, and half then testing her own devices. And her speciality was dive bombing. So she was working on the Stukas, the uh, Focke Wolf um, JU 87 and 88. And so she was doing dive bombing. So that's going in in a very steep dive at high speeds um, because they, they were doing targeted pinpoint bombing. And so they're 
their way of doing this was to point the whole aircraft at the target and then let go of the bombs at the last moment and pull out. Um, again, of course, very dangerous. A lot of people, they didn't have the pressurised suits that the Allies had um, for test pilots to try and keep the blood away from the head and moving around. So um, she was at high danger of blacking out. So she would develop the planes technically and then she would test them herself and she undertook about 15,000 dive bomb test flights. I mean, to undertake one is extraordinary. These pilots were really highly recognised, respected for their work. Uh, when people came to see, they couldn't believe that, that one pilot could be doing this. And when she walked out and was a woman, it was absolutely extraordinary. And yet she ended up heading up one of the main Nazi aeronautical development research centres for the Nazi regime during the war, even though she was a woman. Why did you decide to tackle these two women in a double biography? These women, in some ways, they were very different. You know, one was fair bubbly, enthusiastic, confident, keen about the regime. The other one was dark-haired, very reticent about the regime, had a lot of caution about it, saw it with a different light. Um, And yet they were united by something. So they're both proud German patriots um, and they both had a strong sense of duty and personal uh, commitment. However... um, they were committed to different things. So Hannah Reich was very much committed to the new Nazi regime, whereas Melita was a conservative from an old German family and was committed in her mind to a different Germany, a Germany before the Nazis took power. And in fact, this is the most extraordinary thing about them and why I've done them as a double biography is I think their stories together give us a much greater insight into the insanity of the regime in some ways. The Nazi regime claimed that the only place for women was in the home, kish cooker kinder, you know, church, children, cooking. And yet they gave these two women this role, uh, the only two female test pilots, but two of the most famous and the most important test pilots for the regime in the war. And the regime also said that there was no rule at all for Jews in the country. And yet Melita Schiller, just before the war, found out that her father had been born Jewish. And the Nazis knew this. And... Her working for the regime was partly because she applied for equal to Aryan status, not just for herself, but for her entire family. She had five brothers and sisters and she wanted to protect them all. She wanted to protect her family. And so to make herself indispensable to the regime gave much more weight to her uh, claim for equal to Aryan status for her family. So she was trying to protect them. So we have two women with completely different perspectives on the regime. As well, these two women highlight that really that Nazi ideology was quite contradictory it absolutely shows they were prepared to compromise when it came to it. I think it shows that, that that even after the purges, even after a lot of the, certainly the communist opposition, a lot of the other political parties had been got rid of, there wasn't uniformity inside Nazi Germany. There was a range of people still holding very different beliefs and opinions. Not everyone could act on that, but some people did, and these women did. Hannah Adrent famously talked about the banality of evil. And I think one of the things this book shows is these women, they were not small cogs in a machine that were only doing the role that was expected of them. As a lot of uh, people claimed after the war, we didn't know where the trains led, we were just the clerk in the office. Well, these women weren't doing those things. If they were doing what was expected of them, they'd have been at home looking after their families. These women made great effort to not just work, but to succeed and to to lead the way in male-dominated industries in Nazi Germany. So it shows... um, it, it was their determination that, that gave them this incredible role in the war, um, even though they were women. So it shows there were possibilities. Can you tell us a bit more about the air age in Germany and what flying at this period of uh, the Third Reich's 
growth came to symbolise? This is after the First World War. And at the end of the First World War, one of the conditions in the Treaty of Versailles was to get rid of the German Air Force. It wasn't the Luftwaffe then. But they uh, literally destroyed the planes and there was a period when engine-powered planes were forbidden. And gliding became the new aspirational sport in Germany and it attracted a mass following. So you got crowds of 30,000 people coming along to watch these shows and both Hannah Reich and Melita Schiller would have been among those crowds watching them desperate to have a go when they could. And eventually... Um, In 1920, actually, Melita Schiller took her first flight in a glider at one of these events. Um, She wasn't really meant to, but she'd been helping out, lending a hand when everyone was needed to pull these gliders back up the slopes to relaunch them and so on. And she was allowed to go in a sort of open cockpit, wooden canvas, very flimsy machine, risking her neck um, and absolutely adored it immediately. Um, and funnily enough, 1920 was the first year that Hitler first, as far as we know, flew in a plane as well. He was taken by Robert Ritter von Grime, who was later very close friends with Hannah Reich, um, who flew Hitler to the Kapputsch. Um, and that was, again, in an open... Well, it was in an open biplane, not in a glider, um, but it was open to the elements. So it was terrible stormy weather. They both got drenched. He was squashed in between gas canisters and the frame of the plane, uh, and they were late. They didn't make it for the putsch, and uh, apparently he donned a false moustache to kind of make his way out and, and disappear, saying he was an accountant. Anyhow, he didn't like the flight because it was very difficult. He got airsick, and obviously he was drenched and so on. Yet he recognised, with that flight, the potential of flight. For him, flying wasn't just for sports, uh, it was, uh, or for commerce, it was a political machine. And Hitler very early on recognised the power and significance of flight, both with its connotations of freedom and of power. And uh, they use it in all sorts of ways. So as the um, Nazi party gained membership, they would put up zeppelins uh, with the membership figures on the side of the uh, balloon. They would uh, use planes to distribute leaflets all over the country. And in 1932, Hitler was the first uh, leader to undertake an airborne election campaign. He did hustings flying around the country because the government had control of the radio waves. This was his way of getting around the country and it was huge and they did it with such theatrical pizzazz as well. They'd keep the crowd waiting and then they would land. Hitler would come out, he'd do his speeches. They'd time it so that it was dusk as he flew off. When he flew off, they got to the sky. He would suddenly put on all the lights, like blazing in the sky. And they, they, the journalists at the time write very romantically about the power of this and the people hearing the crowd over the engines of the plane. So Hitler absolutely knew the power of flight and how to use it for political ends um, and was very interested in the development of the Luftwaffe, of course, under Goering. And what about the role of the, these two women pilots in the Nazi propaganda machine? Um, how were their uh, achievements and their public image used to glorify the regime? Well, uh, Hannah Reich was very happy to be associated with the regime. And so she would undertake various PR things. She became quite a celebrity. So you see, um, you see footage of Goebbels' birthday or Goering's birthday party and she may be there among the crowd and the camera will focus in on her. She was already known to be this great pilot. In 1938, they had the uh, motor show, which was an international show. At that time, um, Germany had a lot of very, uh, like, Beinhorn leading motor um, celebrities and, and international winners of the Grand Prix. And so the motor show was this big international fair, but Hitler was using it as more as that. He was using it to show um, German 
Germany's return to power on the European stage. And one of the things they did was they decided to have um, a helicopter display. So they had it in the Deutschlandhalle, which was the biggest stadium in uh, inside stadium in Europe at the time. And Hannah actually flew the helicopter inside the auditorium, flew it up, threw it around so that all the audience could see her and then landed it. And as she landed it, she had practised coming out while giving the Nazi salute. So you can see she's totally aligning herself as much in this very theatrical way to help promote the regime on the European stage. Melita was also asked to do some of this publicity work, but always managed to find excuses until uh, late on in the war. Eventually, she did agree. She did a speech uh, in Stockholm during the war um, in which she, if you read the text carefully, she never mentions Hitler. She never mentions the Nazi regime. Um, She does talk about her country, but it's in such terms that it's all quite ambiguous. So she eventually buckled to pressure um, and did do some publicity, but it it wasn't very helpful for the regime. It wasn't very, you know, it wasn't tailored to, to how they had wished it to be. And was a lot of this publicity focused on the fact that they were women and their gender? Was that the kind of key to their propaganda value? Not really. I mean, it was more implicit than that. Yes, uh, Hannah Reich was seen as this wonderful flying femme or fra- flying Fraulein. Um, but it was just, you know, she was, she was beautiful. She was very glamorous. She wore a lot of white. She had her hair curled, she was blonde, she was pretty. So it was kind of implicit, that was it. She was the, that, that figurehead. Um, but they weren't championing other women to do this. I mean, she was, she was used as an example for German womanhood, for, for being someone so dedicated to the regime. They weren't trying to recruit more women to fly. That wasn't the aim at all. But it was just a patriotic figurehead to, to rally behind. And she was used later on in the war on the Eastern Front as well. She was taken out by Robert Richard von Grime, who'd flown Hitler um, to the Kapp Putsch in 1920. In the war, he became very senior. And he was actually the last, just in the last few days of the war, he became the last head of the Luftwaffe. Uh, and earlier on, he knew things were going very badly on the Eastern Front and he wanted some someone to come and reinvigorate the troops and give a bit of... Uh, enthusiasm and he brought Hannah Reich out and she met a number of people on the front and I think her trip was really welcomed. Um, She certainly wrote very enthusiastically about the wonderful uh, results that she'd managed to deliver but in fact of course it'd be much better if they could have provided more winter clothing, supplies, ammunition and so on for their troops but she was very keen to do all she could. So did Hannah and Melita cross paths much and how did they feel about one another? Yes they did know each other throughout the war um, and you might have imagined that the only two Nazi test pilots who were women would have some sort of alliance or sorority support for each other. Um, but actually, they loathed one another. They were very suspicious of each other. And um, it was said that Melita wouldn't even have a cup of tea with Hannah. Um, there's certainly some very frosty meetings. I mean, they were they were at some of the same test centres at the same time in Rechlin. Um, they were both um, at the Berlin Aero Club at the same time. And we have some reports of them, some very frosty moments between them. And I think Hannah was also very suspicious about Melita and her political persuasions. I mean, she does in letters write about maybe Melita was trying to sabotage the war. Maybe she was um, working for the other side in some way. Um, she's putting these insinuations out. And Melita, of course, her father being having been born Jewish, is is really in a vulnerable position. So this is really serious stuff. Um, so yes, after the war, when 
Melita's sister, Clara, decides that she would write a memoir of her sister, which sadly never happened. Um, She asked various people who had known her sister during the war for their memoirs of Melita. And Hannah immediately wrote to her saying, you you know, there was nothing remarkable about what she did. And she said she was motivated by ambition, but it wasn't a healthy kind of ambition, but an ambition perhaps driven by some inner despair, um, perhaps. And she um, says that this may be because she's Jewish and therefore, you know, not cracked up correctly for this. And she couldn't. And she says that her Iron Cross wasn't valid and, you know appalling treatment um but it's absolutely fascinating clara is a pretty strong woman and doesn't take it so there's this amazing exchange of letters between them uh, and they obviously well they actually met as well and had some pretty fiery discussions about it so we know there was no love loss between these two if you look at the two when you got your iron cross you had an official portrait and melita and hannah's portrait was both done at the heinrich hoffman studio um and their photographs could not be more contrasting hannah's photograph she has this massive beam on her face she's got her iron cross proudly pinned onto her and smiling into the camera absolutely fabulous Uh, Melita much more circumspect she's gone for a portrait in profile she's not smiling at all there is no well the only sign of the iron cross in there is that she's had the ribbon of it fashioned into a tiny bow which is pinned onto her jacket lapel Um, so there is no swastika in that portrait with her at all I don't know if there's another portrait like that of someone getting their iron cross. To me, it seems a very clear statement of their differing opinions on the regime. Is it right that as women, Hannah and Melita were not allowed to be part of the Luftwaffe? Yes, they didn't. Uh, they didn't directly work for the Luftwaffe. I mean, they did. All of their work was directly for the benefit of the Luftwaffe, but they were employed via different ways. So, Melita, for example, was employed through an academic institute that was attached to, um, but that was just a sort of technicality to get them around it. And uh, did they see any conflict? They were in Berlin while it was being bombed and both of them experienced that. Um, And while Hannah was doing her test flights, she was under fire occasionally as well as the Allies increasingly gained uh, dominance in the airspace above Berlin. Um, She was shot at during her test work, but she continued nonetheless. So how did Hannah and Melita both view the work that they did? Yeah, one of the interesting things is when when I started looking at this, as a young woman, Hannah is very feisty and strong and she is, she's sort of a proto-feminist in some ways. I mean, not in all ways, clearly, but in some ways she's pushing for, for women's roles to be opened up, for her to have, you know, she's full of these very funny lines about how her feminine profile ruins the masculine parades and that sort of thing. She's she's constantly saying that these men shouldn't be... She's applying directly to Hitler sometimes and to the senior Nazis who were her allies because she was experiencing sexism and she was having these men reprimanded and they hated it. And so you get lots of people, lots of men testifying that she was above herself and so on. But really, she was just trying to get her rightful place on her abilities. Whereas Melita is, is, doesn't have that. She considers herself an exception to the rule. When she gives her speech in Sweden, she says, you know, we female pilots are not suffragettes. She's not trying to push the cause. She's pulling up the ladder behind her. She's got no interest in the other women who might be interested in doing this work. She does her work as a test pilot, extraordinary work. She goes to the drafting table and does her engineering work and her designs. Then she comes home, she puts on a penny and she cooks her husband dinner. It shows that, you know, things are not black and white. I think all too often the war is shown in these very clear terms. Things were complicated. These women were complicated and that's what makes them interesting. Hannah becomes very sort of single-minded, very limited in her views on things. You know, she she accepts the Nazi cause totally uncritically. She later has information about what's happening in some of the concentration camps and she chooses to look the other way. Well, she does actually take an information leaflet and challenge the senior Nazi leadership about what's happening. 
but immediately accepts their sort of deferral and, and they say, what, what, do you think it's true? And she accepts that as a denial and immediately sort of dismisses it. Um, she's very, very willing to look the other way. Whereas Melita, um, actually... Uh, she is critical of the regime from the start and becomes increasingly so. Often the stories of these two women reflect each other and then sort of seem to cross over and reflect. So they're, they're working very tightly in the same very small field together, know each other, loathe each other, very connected, both of them, to the senior Nazi leadership and take very different choices that lead to very different dramatic actions in the war. So Hannah, actually, I mean, what she's most famous for is flying into uh, Berlin right at the end of the war in April 1945, when Berlin is surrounded by the Red Army. Um, she's one of the last people to fly in. She flies in with Robert Ritter von Grime. The Red Army see this plane coming in. They shoot at it. Grime is at the controls and Hannah's actually behind him. And she is leaning over his shoulder, making sure... She's there as a co-pilot if needed. And they hit the plane and the bullets, uh, armour-piercing, they, they go through the plane into von Grimes' legs. He slumps unconscious from blood loss and Hannah reaches over his shoulder and lands this plane uh, on the main east-west axis in Berlin. Drags him out, uh, drags Ron Grime out, gets him to the bunker where he's operated on by or sort of patched up by Hitler's personal surgeon. And Hannah takes last orders from Hitler and she's there in the last few days in the bunker. And she begs him, she said, well, I can fly you out, you know, you should leave. And Hitler refuses to go. So in a way, she tries to save him, but she, she doesn't. She does fly von Grime out again just before the end of the war and they, they carry on. Whereas Melita is involved in a very different um, dramatic occasion with the Fuhrer as well, trying to go the other way. So she is, she is fighting against the Nazis from within. And so they take diametrically opposed positions and they act on it. Absolutely extraordinary story. And what do these experiences um, tell us about the very complicated nature of culpability and complicity in the regime? As you mentioned, things are not black and white. The one thing this story highlights is the insanity of a regime that thought there was a simple role for women that was in the home looking after the family, no role at all for Jews, and yet gave its highest honours, the Iron Cross, to two women, one of whom was part Jewish, um, in a role that was in the very male-dominated field of the Luftwaffe and test pilot work. On the other side, it also shows how complicated society was, how complicated it was for people inside Germany in the war as well. So we have uh, two women who really could have kind of sat out the war. Or certainly Hannah could have. Uh, she was friends with Ellie Beinhorn, who didn't have a very active role in the war, later did do a little bit of plane delivery. But she chose to put herself right in the forefront to make a career through being a test pilot right at the edge, the leading edge of that work. Um, and she supported that regime solidly. After the war, she claimed that she was apolitical. And I think she's traditionally seen as sort of a woman and so a bit naive and, and not party to the information of what was going on. But actually, you could argue that as a woman who had to fight to get that career, she is less naive. She, she has put herself forward deliberately. She's made an active choice to support that regime rather than being then in a role that was expected of her. I found a number of letters um, and correspondence that Hannah wrote after the war that really show that she was 
deeply anti-Semitic and that she never changed her opinion. She never revised her opinion of the regime. She had opportunities after the war. She was put through a sort of denazification process um, by the Americans when they held her in uh, captivity for about 18 months after the war. But she, in her memoirs she published later, she never really criticises the regime. I mean, here she has a wonderful opportunity to say, look, at the time, I didn't really know what was going on. Looking back, I realise some caveat to say that she didn't now endorse it, but she never takes that opportunity. She didn't die till the late 1970s. There are interviews with her where she's wearing the Iron Cross, even when it was illegal to wear one. In fact, she was interviewed by the BBC and the journalist then told me he had to take a, tell her to remove um, a medal she was wearing with a swastika in it because it couldn't be broadcast. So she was still, even when she knew afterwards, when there was no dispute about this regime, she never took the opportunity to distance herself or to um, you know, rebalance the view. Um, so I believe that she was, as some of her contemporaries said, a committed Nazi, um, ideologically as well. And I think that story has not been put forward. She's sort of recognised as a, a Nazi heroine, very daring, very brave. She was incredibly brave and she was a brilliant, brilliant pilot. She was also a Nazi. These things can go together. No one, as far as I know, has put the two stories of these women together. And since they did know each other, they did meet, they had very strong opinions about each other. To tell the story of the two women together is, you know, greater than the sum of its parts. That was Claire Mully. The Women Who Flew for Hitler, The True Story of Hitler's Valkyries, is out now in both the UK and the US, published by Macmillan. And you can read a version of this interview in the July edition of BBC History magazine, which is currently on sale. Plus, Claire Mully will be one of the speakers appearing at our History Weekend event in York this November. To find out more details of this and our October weekend in Winchester, please visit historyweekend.com. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Well, that's about it for today, but please do join us again on Thursday when we'll be talking about the history of collecting. 
Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.